This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Ukrainians are trying to live a normal life as the war rages on. Uh, Advocate Stepan Berko gives us a live update from inside the city of Lviv on the west end of Ukraine, what's happening there. And he answers the question, is NATO doing enough? Dr. Hannah Shalist also joins us from Odessa on the south coast, understands the fighting on the coast, that Russian ship that got blown up and the magnitude of that and what life looks like in springtime on the coast. Also on the podcast, Steve Stebbing gets us pumped up for big movie releases this week. Check out Lost City, Everything Everywhere at Once, new Halo TV show and more on what the hell should we watch this weekend. All of this and more coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Steve Stebbing's World of Movies, so let's get started. SteveStebbing.ca, he joins us from Penticton, Alberta, uh, Alberta, <laughs> BC. Oh, God, it's been a long week. Um, <laughs> hey, Steve, how's Penticton, hey. Alberta? Uh, different, yeah. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm in Alberta now, that's that's weird, that's new. More truck nuts? <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> a lot more. Well... There are a lot of Dodge Rams and stuff in, in town and stuff, so um, it's yeah, fitting. That makes sense. It's fitting. Yeah. Even the Volkswagens have truck nuts. Um, <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's get started with the movies and what the hell should we watch this week. I did want to bring up a couple of things that I that I did see that I wanted to recommend. Um, I watched um, Free Guy. Yes. What and, a great movie. And you enjoyed, yeah. Like a smile-inducing film. Um, it's just charming. It's fun. It has a great message to it. It has a lot of fan service, I'll say, um, yeah. especially pertaining to the end. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's also like this sweet movie about friendship as well, because Ryan Reynolds and little, little Ray Howery have such yeah. a little nice little bromance. Well, there is there's um, it's like the Truman Show, if you know that mm-hmm. made very mm-hmm. current. But Absolutely. with a very deep philosophical uh, root to it, which yeah, was and cool. A ba- and a bad guy, Taika Waititi, so you can't go wrong there. Yeah, and there's also the dude, um, Catchphrase, which is pretty funny. <laughs> uh, that's We'll leave that. That's my thoughts. There's other shows that I've watched that I look forward to sharing, too. But let's get started with Steve's list, stevestabbing.ca, if you want to check it out. Oh, just got an email. My apologies. Hey, Kels. Um <laughs> First, uh, mute. I'm muted. It's my bad. Um, the first movie is Lost City. What is this? Taken? Am I taken? <laughs> Alan? I'm here to save you. Ow! She has the key to finding the lost treasure. After them! I am driving. Oh, 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 oh. What is that? Just pick it and play. You pick it and play. It. Uh, Don't make it sound. Uh, <laughs> getting you out of here why are you so handsome my dad was a weatherman <laughs> uh sandra bullock yeah sandra bullock channing tatum uh in a rom-com like a treasure hunting rom-com your bad guy is daniel radcliffe harry potter is the bad guy in this one oh, wow. and uh basically sandra bullock plays a romance novelist who is kidnapped by uh, Daniel Radcliffe because he believes that she can help him find this uh, hidden treasure. Uh, enter uh, Channing Tatum's character, which is the cover model for all of her romance novels that wants to prove to her that he's more heroic than just a uh, pretty face on the cover of her books. And uh, he definitely doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, it looks like a really fun cameo from Brad Pitt in this one as well. 
and the reviews are good. I mean, it, it's rare that these rom-coms uh, get a lot of acclaim, but uh, this one's hanging around in the high 70s on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, I mean, with this cast, I'm kind of inclined to believe them, really, because I like Sandra Bullock. I really like Channing Tatum, who's having a, a really stellar year so far. And uh, I, I like Daniel Radcliffe, too. I really do. Would you talk to all of our moms, by the way, that said high 70s is not good enough for this family? Ooh. Ooh. We're, it's, it's still fresh, man. Still fresh. <laughs> for all of you kids out there who worked hard for those high 70s, you remember what Steve said. It's very good. Yeah. It's very good. Why not? We passed. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, Steve Stemming, what the hell should we watch this weekend? I'm Shane Hewitt. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. All right, sounds scary, and I'm going to let you watch it and tell us about it. Yeah, well, this one's not horror at all. Basically, this is kind of sci-fi action uh, with a mind bend the whole time. It comes from Daniels, the the duo behind Swiss Army Man with Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe, which is one of the most uh, interesting and incredible films that I've seen in the last 20 years. I'm expecting so much fun from this one. Uh, it's Michelle Yeoh playing a Chinese immigrant who finds that she, there are many different versions of her across the multiverse and they have to kind of combine into one to uh, kind of save her predicament, uh, much like Jet Li's The One from the early 2000s. Uh, but this one's got Jamie Lee Curtis and it's got uh, Kehui Kwan, who uh, is means a lot to my childhood, uh, because he is the he played short round in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and he was also Data in Goonies, and now he's back to uh, take a main role in this movie. And this is one of my most anticipated movies of 2022. Uh, I can't wait to get my hands on this movie. Scary movies are more Steve's thing than my thing. Feel like we need to just put that one out there, saying um, okay. Again, not a horror not a horror at all not at all yeah at but all. the three like got that feel to it that's not a horror but like the thriller feel by the way can we just all agree that um that we need to figure out this verse before we worry about multi other verses <laughs> that we live in because we've basically cocked this one up so bad that like we should fix this one first <laughs> storytelling knows no bounds well, you know, but it's it's like if you have three cars or four cars or five cars and you just drive them till they're out of gas. And then what happens the one day that you're late? You have no cars with gas left. And so that's what I feel like this multiverse thing that we're creating is doing. We're just basically creating a bunch of cars that are out of gas. But who has five cars? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody Albertans. who's Penticton, Alberta, okay. Penticton, Alberta with truck nuts. Do all those cars have truck nuts? Willing to bet so. <laughs> Most, uh, three out of five, probably. <laughs> Penticton, Alberta is a beautiful place, by the way. <laughs> it really uh, is. Next movie on Steve's list is Gold with Zach Efron. Zach Efron, not Efron. I'm supposed to meet a man here. 
to take me to the compound. Came from the west, right? Here it's getting pretty bad out that way now. Folks turning on each other. So why the compound? Seems a strange place to be heading. Once in a lifetime opportunity. What is it? Come here! Look at this! That's gold. We just found a pile of gold! Which I feel fairly represents the sound we would make if we found a pile of gold. Absolutely. And what's really interesting about this is um, basically following two guys, uh, Zach Efron plays a drifter that's looking to get from one part of an incredibly harsh train in a near future Australia to the other. Uh, and along the way, uh, him and his driver find uh, basically a cache of gold buried and uh, he opts to wait behind and kind of uh, take watch over the gold while Buddy goes and gets an excavator and guarded against the elements, which are, you know, sandstorms, uh, wild dogs, all this kind of stuff. And um, really well done thriller. Zach Efron's really coming into his own as far as uh, he's not that high school musical kid anymore. Like he, he's quite a well-rounded actor. Maybe it becomes down to the fact that he almost died making his Netflix series Down to Earth, which was, uh, I think it was in Australia that he almost died as well. So he has kind of like a kinship of survival, I think, when it comes to that big country. Kinship of survival. That is very deep. I love it. Um, what the hell should we watch this week? Uh, this weekend was Steve Stebbing. Uh, we've just got to, uh, you know, dig into the movies, man. We got to find out what's good. Uh, by the way, you are not my mother. Is next. We're still trying to figure out what happened. When did you last hear from her? She left to bring her to school. Is everything okay? Has she gone missing before? Not in a long time. Ma'am. Ma'am. Uh, there scary. You There's your horror. This is your horror Jeez. film. Yes. Uh, this is an Irish horror. There's something about the British Isles when it comes to making these little um, atmospheric, uh, low-cost uh, horror films that are super effective and super get under your skin. Uh, basically, this follows a uh, teen girl living in a uh, North Dublin low-income housing area with her mom and her grandma when her mom goes missing one night and then returns the next day but is a bit off. And uh, <laughs> slowly but surely, she starts to realize that uh, that might not be her mom that came back. It's a hangover. Um, we need to be quick here. Let's get into this uh, halo because I did want to chat about it, but we got to be quick. Let's hit it. There's something out there, just beyond our reach. It's like opening your eyes for the first time after living in the dark. Uh, Halo, the video game, turns into a series. Do I have that yes. right? Yes. Yeah, it was supposed to be a movie at one point, and like Neil Blomkamp was going to direct it, Peter Jackson was going to produce it, Alice Garland was going to write it, Denzel Washington was going to be Master Chief. Huge universal movie, falls apart. All of a sudden, Showtime picks it up years later. 
makes the pilot, gets cold feet, decides that they don't want to continue on it. So Paramount's like, okay, well, we got Spielberg waiting here that wants to do this. So he'll produce it with Amblin Entertainment. And now Paramount Plus has it and we get a whole series. And I really dug the first two episodes. Uh, They sent it to me. And um, there's a little bit of janky CG when it comes to Master Chief in the first episode. But, uh, I mean, it's a hard R as far as violence goes. Uh, It's got a lot of fan service. I will say that Master Chief does remove his helmet in this one. So uh, if you're a truest when it comes to he can never remove his helmet, you will be disappointed, like, immediately. Um, I I didn't mind it, though. I didn't mind it, though. So No, no, it's Pablo Schreiber. Pablo Schreiber. Um, who's Liev Schreiber's brother. Uh, as far as popular shows go, um, he was in the show Orange is the New Black. He played Porn Stash. So, yeah. Is it The there Rock? No. Oh, it's no. Kevin Hart, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like Kevin Hart. He's funny. This is The Shift Podcast. If I've learned one thing and... Trust me, there's been a long list of things I've learned in the last month. Uh, it's that things change quickly in a day, let alone a week. Uh, it's been a little longer than that since we t- chatted with Stepan Berko, um, who is in Lviv. He joins us now from Ukraine. Hey, Stepan. Hey, Shane. Welcome back to the program, sir. It's great to hear your voice. I'm uh, I'm really appreciative of you making the time uh, to be with us. It's hard to believe that we've been chatting for a month now, Stepan. Yes, something that I haven't expected to last so long, but it seems that this this war will last even longer. Uh, Stepan is an advocate for people. That's a very quick summary of all the hard work that he does. Um, you yourself have experienced this, um, you know, with your family and everything that's going on. Um, you're in Lviv. I would like to chat about that a little bit first, though. Um, in Lviv, you guys have seen some attacks. I mean, I believe it was a week ago we chatted about what does it look like? Some people, uh, you shared with us were, uh, naive to the fact that it was going on, going for coffee, everything else. Other people were working their jobs and some people were working hard to find supplies and help other people out and, and get people moving down refugee lines and so on. So there was an awful lot of different perspectives that you shared with us. And then all of a sudden some things happened in Lviv too. Um, what does it look like for you, stepping a week later, a month into everything that's been going on with Russia invading Ukraine? You know, if you wouldn't know that there is war in Ukraine and uh, that Lviv was hit with a missile once and you would get into the city and walk around, you wouldn't even know and that this is the city that's, that is in the country that's, uh, you know, being attacked by Russia. So basically, people are walking on the streets, restaurants are working, uh, even flower shops are working. So uh, life is like ordinary. Maybe not so um, many different uh, products in the supermarkets. We have some uh, problems with the logistics. Uh, but other than that, Life is as usual. And uh, what is interesting is that uh, for the last, I think, four days, we haven't had any uh, air alerts during nights, which is unusual because uh, for three weeks we had uh, air alerts 
uh, at night, even a few, so like at 3 a.m. and then at 6 a.m., which was, you know, it was really hard to sleep and to fall asleep after you waited for a few hours in, in, the, in the basement. But now, no air alerts. And on one side, it's good because you can sleep uh, better at night. But on the other hand, when we talk, we're talking about this with my colleagues, uh, you know, it's, it's like uh, something to suspect. Why aren't there any uh, air alarms? Uh, why aren't there any um, missiles flying over Western Ukraine? Maybe this is something, you know, like a silence before a, a big hit or something. But these are just, uh, you know, thoughts of people who have experienced some things that um, are frightening. Uh, of course, nothing to compare with what people in Mariupol, Kharkiv, or other cities are experiencing. But still, this is something that influences the way people think about what's going on. But other than that, Lviv is a peaceful city, I would say. It's so interesting when you say it that way, um, Stepan, that, you know, you go to sleep at night, you don't hear the alarms. At the same time, I imagine there must be a little bit of worry that you slept through one. Um, there is a comfort level or complacency that starts to kick in after a little while. And um, is it a good thing or a bad thing that Lviv is functioning somewhat normally um, today, a month into this uh, into this invasion? I mean, I, I mean, from the outside, I guess what I sort of see is that it's probably a good thing to show the resilience and go about your day and 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 do all that. But at the same time, I also if I'm honest with my heart, I feel like it's kind of concerning that these people aren't, I don't want to say taking it seriously because I don't know what they're going through in their hearts and in their minds, but at the same time, you know, um, preparing or doing something that in hindsight they wish they had done. I, I find, I find the emotions around it a little confusing. I would say that, uh, I think it's, it's the right way to do it so you have to show to each other to other ukrainians especially to those refugees who are who are arriving from the east that there is not the safe haven but at least a place where you can feel yourself as a you know as a human partially living life as it was before war because it's really hard for your mm, you know mental health to to be constantly in a situation when you feel threatened, a threat to your life. So I think it's, this is a good thing. Another aspect that you mentioned uh, is that uh, are people used to, to the fact that there is war in the country and are people you know, not paying attention anymore? Uh, I think the, uh, the situation with Weave is that we, we can't do anything to prevent uh, anything from happening. I mean, the front lines are far from here. Uh, but we, I mean, any city can be hit with a missile and there's uh, basically nothing you can do. You, 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 the only thing you can do is to go to a shelter when you hear an air alarm. And maybe many people uh, do this. Uh, another problem is that sometimes you just can't wait for like hours in this uh, shelter because you have to jo a job to do or something like that. So I think um, 
it's like a personal choice everyone is doing. So whether to risk your life uh, and uh, go on as usual when the air alarm is on or to, if you have this uh, opportunity, is to be safe and wait in your cellar or basement or any other safe place. Stepan Berko is in Lviv on the west end of Ukraine. Now, Stepan, I, I guess I have questions about things that are happening around Kiev and everything else. But as I thought about them, uh, it occurred to me that perhaps I don't want to lead you down a path, if you will, to talk about what's most important for you. Um, so we are hearing stories, of course, of pushback around um, Kiev and, and surrounding troops and all these different things. What What are some of the big events that you're seeing Ukrainians celebrate uh, with resisting what's going on? What are, the, what are some of the big ones that you'd like all of us as Canadians to know? The Maybe it's, it's the big victories that, as Ukrainians see it. I think uh, the, the most important things is that when people see that uh, children and civilians uh, are safe from the hotspots like Mariupol. Because when you see people who lived in Mariupol for weeks and experienced these atrocities, and then when when you see that they finally made it to Zaporizhia or some other cities, and now they are more or less safe, this is something that gives hope that, of course, there will be many deaths and many more deaths, but still we uh, are managing to save our people. So... Uh, I think this is like the, there are two main objectives right now for our country is to first to survive. So basically resist this aggression. And the second one is to save as many people as possible. When, when I see these uh, videos of these, uh, um, you know, civilian cars uh, getting to, to save cities, this is something that gives me hope. Another thing, of course, is uh, when our military is uh, uh, successfully uh, um, conducting some operations. For example, yesterday our military um, managed to sink a big uh, military ship near uh, Berdyansk, where Russian forces were trying to uh, deploy some military uh, equipment and uh, some supplies. And this is what this was like a number one news on the internet and on the on the TV because when we see that uh, despite fighting already a month against the second largest army in the world, uh, we 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 managed to um, fight them back. We managed to do some things that are, that uh, you know stop them, and uh, we we cannot conduct any military. Uh, operations on sea because Black Sea and Azov Sea are fully blocked by Russia. But, but you know, Russians won't be that brave on sea anymore. And this gives us hope that cities like Mykolaiv and uh, Odessa will also hold and won't be captured. And the last thing I would say is uh, the the bravery of people on the occupied territories uh, every day we're seeing videos from Kherson and uh, other cities that are captured by Russians and how people are marching with Ukrainian flags 
in front of uh, equipped uh, Russian soldiers holding gun and pointing them at these uh, peaceful rallies. And they're not afraid to say that they are Ukrainians, that they are not welcoming um, Russian soldiers. I think this sign of bravery is something that inspires all of us, those on the front lines and, of course, those who are in some safer cities like me. It inspires us to, uh, you know, not, uh, uh, not to um, fall into despair. Uh, to to do uh, the job you have to do, either to fight or to continue working, to boost the economy, or to uh, do some other things that are needed for our country to withstand. Uh, Stepan Berkos in Lviv on the west end of Ukraine. Now you have all of Canada listening right now, Stepan. So when when you look at um, these leaders coming together uh, in Belgium and, and being able to uh, start more conversations about what the needs are, what do you see the uh, the, the big needs are? I, it's okay if they're a repeat of the same needs from last week, but in the spirit of you know sharing what, what Ukrainians want from Canadians, what Ukrainians want from the rest of the world uh, right now, um, you know, that conversation has been happening. Uh, the requests of more missiles and more, uh, all of that is, is clear. That's for sure. What do you, uh, you know, when you sit down with your friends or your chat, I'm sure you have some people who have uh, taken into service, whether volunteer or, or as a job through the military. Um, you know, what, wh- what would you like Canadians to know that, uh, that the world has to do here? Um, Of course, uh, our first and primary need, as I said last week, is uh, the defensive weapons to protect our sky. So anti-aircraft, anti-missile weapons. But also something that we are thinking already is that um, we somehow have to recapture the the land that was um, captured by Russians. Uh, Of course, they won't this this is obvious to all Ukrainians that Russians will not go home just because uh, they feel that uh, they've uh, uh, lost too many soldiers. It seems that in order to capture back Kherson, Chernihiv, Sumy, I mean, and other areas, and Mariupol to save Mariupol, we have to have not lo- not only defensive weapons but also offensive weapons, and. Uh, uh, I think this is something that people, those political leaders uh, in the West, they are afraid to even think of uh, supplying us not only with defensive but offensive weapons. And I think this is something uh, because of the narratives that Russia has created, that uh, any uh, support, any military support to Ukraine uh, would be regarded by Russia as uh, you know a step into a more escalation or a step to the World War Three, uh, but there is no way we can stabilize the situation in in this region in Ukraine unless we recapture uh, our our territory and unless we uh, save the people who are on these territories uh, threatened by Russian soldiers. And um, I think that uh, Western leaders have to be, um, have to leave behind these narratives that Russia uh, 
cannot you know be defeated or we cannot uh, do anything to threaten Russia. Russia has done everything already except maybe chemical attacks and nuclear attacks. And uh, what they're doing right now is threatening, they're threatening West with doing this. But uh, from the experience of, of last year, uh, Russia will use and will do anything uh, to stop, to prevent NATO and other countries helping Ukraine. And unless Russia is uh, uh, meets, you know, a very strong and swift reaction, and very strong as and you know stance on on this situation, then they can back down. If uh, Western leaders uh, continue saying that we will not supply Ukraine with this and this and this, we will not do this. This is only something that encourages Russia to do more and more atrocities. I think that Western leaders have to be more brave in how they communicate publicly uh, war with Russia and how they act, including with uh, defensive and offensive weapons supplying to Ukraine. Stepan Berko is in Lviv on the west end of Ukraine. Uh, quickly, Stepan, if you can uh, share, we had a text from a listener who said, you know, we've heard news about Ukrainians being moved to, like, from Mariupol into Russia. Uh, do you guys, are you guys hearing that same? I'm sure the reports are the same. For yes, you? yes. This is, oh. the, yes, we've heard this. This is crazy. Uh, because if you are just, you know, if people from Mariupol and other cities are moved to Russia, uh, without their consent they they uh are deprived of their passports so they're given some papers uh, by russian officials and this means that they are captured in this country they have no possibility to leave russia and basically what they will do they'll become slaves and uh mm, and i mean literally because from the history the stories that i've heard earlier i mean people from central asian countries uh, who, uh, you know, ended up in Russia without their documents. They're, uh, they're doing forced labor. And this is just uh, something that uh, when I hear these stories, this is crazy because people are left for living in the enemy state uh, with no hope to coming back to Ukraine. It's hard to believe that, that we're even having this conversation in the year 2022, Stepan. That's mind blowing to me. Um, absolutely mind blowing. Unfortunately, um, this is this is the reality, and uh, we we have to find ourselves uh, in this reality, accept this, and find ways to to fight these atrocities. Uh, Stepan Berko, it's been a month now. Your family has gone. Um, you, as the man with the most amazing mustache in the planet. Um, <laughs> I, because your mustache is absolutely amazing. Um, the, uh, thank you. How do you, how are you hanging in there? Um, you know, uh, don't reveal any information about your family that you shouldn't, please. But, um, you know, how, how are you hanging in there? Because I'm sure that that's not easy. You know, um, I decided that, uh, I have to live, you know, one day. Uh, and if I don't plan anything further, much further, it's much easier when, uh, you know, 
because you have so much uncertainty right now in our in in your life if you're trying to plan something obviously your plans will be you know they will not work as you plan so i live one day i'm trying to have a routine uh, i'm i'm trying to have you know a talk with my kid and my wife every day via uh, internet uh, just to um at least pretend or try to have some things that used to be uh, you know usual during the peaceful time uh, this is not easy but um i think with uh, with some time um, both me and my wife and my kid will get used to it i hope that would this will not lo- last for for too long um but uh, as as you know if, according to the un uh like i think 50% of ukrainian children were uh misplaced from where they were they had to travel because of the war so i can imagine that at least 50% of uh ukrainian children uh either don't feel safe because they're not at home they don't see their you know fathers or mothers many of those children uh, are uh, orphans already i heard a few story i heard a story re- just recently about a woman from mariupol who uh had her own kid and then while she was traveling to zaporizhia in this uh, green corridor she just picked up three more children who were orphans because their parents were killed and uh i think children are those who are suffering the most because they're not protect they cannot protect themselves they are you know vulnerable in terms of uh, there's psych you know how, the way they mentally deal with these with these uh, things and i think uh, all of us you, you, i mean ukrainians and international society we have to do everything to protect children uh, you know like the first first uh, and the most important thing mm, i hope that we all uh th- th- you know uh e- even those people who are in safety uh these new circumstances and these um uh situations when you have to be far from your loved ones uh this is something we have to learn to live with for at least some time but i hope that this will make us stronger this will make us feel uh what is real in this world what is true uh, value and uh we will never i think when we come back to our homes and to a peaceful life we will never um think of our relations uh as something that is you know for granted or the fact that you can see your child or you can hug your child this is so this is something you uh should not take for granted that's these these are my thoughts that you know i just yeah i just realized uh, in this month of war in ukraine well i think that's very grounding for all of us to hear and it's advice that um translates around the world when you share it with us it's it's remarkable for me as a dad and i promise you that everybody listening right now feels exactly what you're saying and and uh 
and I really appreciate you so openly sharing your heart with us, Stepan, as always. And um, take care, and, and uh, thank you for being so generous with your time. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again in a couple of days. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. We're going back to Ukraine and Odessa. Dr. Hannah Shalist uh, joins us here, PhD, Foreign Policy Council of the Ukrainian Prism. Uh, there, um, Hannah. Hello. Um, good morning or oh, good night to Canada. Well, good morning, I suppose. Um, it's kind of the middle of the night. Good morning when you don't really know if it's good morning or good evening. That kind of middle of the night feeling. I don't know if you guys describe it the same way that we do. Um, uh, that's for sure. Hannah, can I, first of all, I want to talk about the character of Ukrainians before we get started, because I have a big thank you for you. Um, so I lost my voice this week and, uh, I have Hannah on, on text and, and Mikhailo and, and Stefan and, and all of the contacts that we've spoken to in Ukraine and, it doesn't escape me, Hannah, that when I had to uh, delay our conversations this week, that, like, if you put this into context, like, I don't know if, if it's easy to do or maybe it's hard because you're there in Odessa, but re- go backwards in time, maybe. I-, I didn't feel good. I lost my voice this week, and, uh, you know, I- I'm-, I'm back here now. And there are people in your country who are more concerned with the health of my voice and making sure that I take care of myself, yourself included, and your kind words to make sure that I take care of my health and how important it is. Uh, coming from Ukrainians who are, are in a war-torn country right now, who still find the kindness in their hearts to say, uh, no problem, take care of your health, it matters, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Um, that is so amazingly kind. Um, I just wanted to say thank you. It, it's an amazing experience to feel that. You know, after a pandemic and during any of the war, you really understand the value of health. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what you feel to yourself and that's what you wish to all others. Because when we even had one of the toasts, you know, during the drinking, uh, we always drink for the health of people because we say that health is the only thing you can't buy. And then you can, like, if you have friends, you can restore your house. If you have, uh, um, uh, like, your your brains, you will do your business and money. But if you don't have health, nothing probably will help you. And uh, and that is the reality. That's what really people um, value now, uh, not only for themselves, but also for others. But in general, uh, locals are probably quite an optimistic nation. I can't say that we're totally happy island-style optimist about the life, but definitely not. There is quite a number of uh, pessimism inside of the Ukrainians as well, but that is a little bit different type of, that is not a depression style, that's for sure. Maybe because our history learned us that after each tragedy, we are coming to the new um, new life and new development. And uh, all these tragedies just been making us stronger and believing that one day that we lost Hannah there for one second. Uh, it does happen from time to time where it breaks up, so we usually get her back here in just a couple of seconds. Uh, isn't it so profound to to hear that? I mean, this is coming like um, uh, coming from you know a war zone, and um, but how incredibly grounding it is. I, I like the part when we think about the lives that we go through and the experience of our lives, uh, Hannah. When you say that about you know through every tragedy becomes sort of like a rebirth, being reborn and creating something new. 
uh, the history of Ukraine. When you go backwards in time, I'm sure that um, you can see that that line. That's really profound. Thank you very much uh, for sharing that part. Now, Hannah, how how do you say cheers or to your health or you know you know en français bon santé uh, you know uh, those kinds of things? How, how do you say that in Ukrainian? Huh. You know, that is interesting because we don't have the, the, the single words or something because when there is um, uh, cheers, uh, that's like during the drinking, the main toast as some of the countries having, we have the word budimo and budimo is something like let's be. And it means that everybody can add after this what they would like uh, these be. Let's be healthy, let's be wealthy, let's be happy. Uh, so it, it can be anything what you would like to be. But this let's be, that's also about the future probably. Okay, so I'm going to try it. Did you say Brudimo? Budimo. B-U-D-M-O. B-U-D. Budimo. Budimo. You you will train with the Ukrainian community okay. by the uh, next That's two okay. shows. I know. I need I need help. I would rather try and get it wrong and have you laugh <laughs> than not try at all. So uh, that's beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna practice that. That's important. Okay, Hannah. Um, you are in Odessa. It's on the southern coast of Ukraine. Um, so much has gone on. Uh, just you know, uh, a few hundred kilometers to the east of where you are. I thought you could maybe get us started with the look out your window. I one of one of the things that I've taken away. I know Ryan and the team here have taken away is your ability to share with us very clearly um, what has been going on um, on the south coast, Ukraine in general, south coast um, that you see. Will you, will you share the most important pieces that that you see? As you can imagine, the south coast of uh, uh, Ukraine is about 1,000 kilometers, and the situation is definitely uh, differ a lot uh, from the east uh, to the west. And because the east, we are talking about uh, tragedy of Mariupol, we are talking about Berdyansk. I hope you saw the beautiful pictures of the Russian ship uh, being targeted yesterday in Berdyansk. Uh, I do. Then I have questions have about Crimea. that. Yep. And then you have the uh, situation here, and definitely from town to town it is different. Mykolaiv is fighting, and very successfully, at least according to the morning information, they managed to push away uh, towards the east uh, the Russian forces. We already have a very funny place called Chernobyevka. It is a very small village, but Russians managed to try for 10th time to come and to cross it, and 10th time being beaten there. Almost each night they are coming, and each night we are uh, joking that that is the Bermuda Triangle for them, probably. But that's really strategically important because there is the aerodrome uh, there. Then you have Odessa. Uh, it's sunny, it's spring. You have this feeling of the uh, good feelings, but at the same time, walking downtown, uh, it's empty and uh, with plenty of security arrangements. And you hear the artillery shelling from time to time, and several times per day you hear the uh, sirens uh, because there are attempts to shell, uh, first of all, from the Navy artillery that is at the anchorage, uh, um, uh, not far from the territorial waters of Ukraine. All right, so let's talk about um, Berdyansk and that ship. Um, it's amazing to me, and I we can't forget that when we share things in the media and publicly, they get followed quickly. If you don't know the story of this ship, it was a, a cargo ship. It could carry all kinds of tanks, and it was big. And it was docked there at the port, which is uh, in Azov in the sea, which is sort of tucked away around Crimea into Ukraine, 
and it's important because of of its location. Now, the the thing is, is that the ship goes in, and I think it was two days before the attack happened. There was Russian state media that was on there talking about, look at this Russian ship. It has arrived in Ukraine. Uh, look what it can do. It's amazing. And this big public display, uh, that we were, that we've been told here of how amazing the ship is or how amazing it is for Russian Navy to get there in Berdyansk and then be able to do this. It wasn't two days later. That ship's on fire. Um, possible that the confidence of the media exposed some of the secrets of what the Russian military was up to and Ukrainians took full advantage. Uh, first of all, let me clarify, it was not just a cargo ship, it was one of the biggest landing ships of the Russian Navy. And landing ships, that is uh, something that can bring both uh, uh, military personnel or uh, marines for the amphibious operations, or the uh, equipment like tanks or APCs. So that is quite a strategically important uh, ships, and this one is from the big um, landing ships. But uh, what is the fact that definitely uh, our security, it was security services or military, I don't remember, but it doesn't matter, uh, who published yesterday the post on the social networks, like, thank you, the Russian journalist uh, who demonstrated us in details uh, what is there. Uh, we know the terrain, so we just use this opportunity. And definitely when it was visible that this ship brought a lot of the equipment um, that could uh, jeopardize the situation for Mariupol, because Berdyansk is very close to Mariupol, uh, it, it was good if we could manage and uh, uh, to take our advantage uh, uh, over there. And very much happened. Um, not only that ship, but there was two other ships that left very quickly, uh, looked like they were also on fire or damaged in some way. I mean, this is a, this is a huge blow. And I know because you're on the coast, uh, the folks in Odessa, from what I understand, are watching the Black Sea in general very carefully. This must be reassuring to Ukrainians. Uh, somehow, yes, because as for now, we, uh, if you see the losses of the Russian armed forces during this month, there are plenty of airplanes, that is one of their biggest losses, for example, or the tanks or APCs, that was been normal. But in terms of the ships, uh, as for now, they've been just three and of the very small boats, um, mostly of the like auxiliary um, uh, boats. And uh, uh, on the one hand, you can say that still we don't have the maritime domain warfare here, so is it so important or not? But then you need to understand that uh, many of the ships can be used not just for the amphibious operation, what is one uh, problem, but many of them um, bearing the uh, long-range missiles. And, uh, uh, for example, Iskander, the famous Russian missiles, they can be all caliber missiles standing uh, at these ships, and they've been using it. Uh, there were cases when they uh, shell up to Vinnytsia, and Vinnytsia is approximately 300 kilometers to the center of uh, Ukraine from Odessa. That's why uh, these ships, even if they are not in the territorial waters or near the coast of Ukraine, they are still very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, we hear stories, I guess I don't know much about Navy warfare, but, you know, those kinds of ships can strike from quite far away, so you don't even need to really see them to be in trouble. Is that how you understand it? Yes, exactly. For example, if you, I, I don't know how you followed Syrian events, but in 2015, 
the Russian Caspian flotilla are shelled and they reached Syria. So if you look to the map, where is Caspian Sea? Uh, it is just uh, even more to the east from uh, the Black Sea, and they reached their goals in uh, Syria in the Middle East. So uh, some of these equipment and missiles are now used in the Black Sea as well. And there are certain uh, of them with the capabilities uh, to reach uh, much further than just Ukraine, up to 2,000 kilometers. Yeah, that's staggering. That must be something that uh, matters so much to the folks of Odessa. Um, what's the tone in your city, Hannah? Um, you, you're sitting there, and I, I, it makes me smile when I hear your dog barking in the background because it's a good reminder for us that, you know, how hard I think so many people are working. Um, we spoke to uh, Stepan, who is in uh, Lviv earlier, and and how um, some aspects of life in Lviv he finds it reassuring that people are trying to live life normally and have coffee and buy flowers and, and some of those things to set an example for others elsewhere. When you're looking at other areas, I like Kharkiv, when you're looking at Mariupol and Donetsk and all these other, these areas of, you know, that are so hardly impacted, so hard impacted by all of this, that there is life after this to be found. Is, is that similar experience that you're finding in Odessa today? Yes, that's probably a little bit easier in Odessa in terms that uh, Lviv is experiencing a huge number of the internally displaced people. So they need to work also to cope with all these people, to support them and to provide them with the basic needs. Because everybody expected that Odessa can be the next one, so uh, we don't have so many IDPs, just a small amount, and mostly from uh, Mykolaiv of some of the neighboring um, uh, regions. Uh, that's why it, it's much calmer here. But at the same time, I see daily how the cafes are opening, definitely not a fancy restaurant, but something small for the coffee, the flower shops, uh, something uh, of the basic, like the bakeries, those things that people would like to have. And that's uh, both cheer the mood of the people because it is the look of normality. When you, uh, yesterday I've been at the market and it was really funny, then sirens started, nobody really moved. People just looked and said, mm, okay, we will see Like, if the next sounds are coming, maybe we will go away. Uh, on the one hand, that is definitely a little bit irresponsible. But on the other hand, uh, people don't want to believe before the first uh, bombs are, are falling and they're trying to live their normal life. Uh, at the same time, you know that the working economy is not less important than the uh, um, activities of the armed forces, because otherwise, if the economy would not work, if we would not produce uh, food, that would be extremely difficult. So we would not have anything in our budget. We would not have just a food and basic stuff uh, for the population. 40 million people cannot live with the humanitarian aid alone. That's why a lot of our local authorities, uh, even the president, been saying, like, if you're not fighting, don't feel depression, uh, fight differently, work, do something for the economy of the country. So you would be sure that the country continues functioning. Uh, displaced people, Hannah, uh, Hannah Shalis is in Odessa, Ukraine. Um, folks from Ukraine that are be taking, uh, that are reportedly being taken to Russia, Ukrainians going to Russia. Now, of course, Russia says they all want to come here. Now, that's hard to believe. Um, I'm sure there might be one or two, but um, what are you hearing about Ukrainians being taken to Russia? Uh, first of all, we still don't have the sufficient numbers. Predominantly, we have this information about Mariupol city. And uh, uh, we already heard about at least 2,000 kids. Uh, as you can understand, kids are definitely not choosing where they would like to go. 
And uh, then we heard about quite a substantial several thousand people, at least, uh, of the adults being moved to the Russian territory. And that is very close from Mariupol to the Russian territory. Uh, and uh, some of them being put in the special camps. And uh, some of them received a proposition to go and work somewhere in almost in Siberia. So in the very, very harsh uh, conditions uh, far in the middle of Russia. Uh, as for now, I haven't heard about anybody who would like to do it. The question is that those who wanted to uh, go, go to Russia, they had these eight years. Those who had pro-Russian sentiments, uh, Russians made it easy to get the Russian passports for the citizens of Ukraine. Uh, they, they made it specially for the occupied territories, and then they wanted to use it for other parts of Ukraine in terms of propaganda. Uh, so those who wanted, they could do it even much earlier than the war. Those people who are moved now, uh, even if they agreed, that's mostly from the fear of the personal security, because you saw the pictures of uh, uh, Mariupol and how many people already uh, died there from the military actions. Now, I'm guessing there's not a big lineup for Siberia most days. Um. Yeah, especially that Mariupol is also uh, is a very industrial town. It's not very good with the environment, but still it is on the south with a seaside and with the quite a mild and warm climate. Uh, so yeah. for these people, moving somewhere uh, further is is definitely not a choice. Yeah, yeah, it seems amazing uh, to me. Uh, and just so you know, uh, for ha for those who uh, haven't been introduced to Hannah yet, um, the Ukrainian Prism. I mean, it's it's an organization. Simply put, about clarity of information. So this is what Hannah does. Is that's why she said about learning more and finding out about it. Um, I, I'm curious about this mostly just for myself. 2014 Crimea and the annexation of Crimea. Are the people of Crimea? Are they blacked out like the rest of Russia at this point? They're not knowing, finding out what's truly going on in Ukraine, or, or is there still any lines of communication into Crimea? Because that's so close to you. That is very close to us, but for all these years, we've been trying to install a special radio and TV towers at the um, line between uh, mainland and Crimea. And uh, these uh, towers being targeted uh, by the Russian Federation, both with the electronic equipment and uh, physically when the military action started. So, uh, but still, you have uh, internet and you have the ability at least through the VPN. So in terms of the general, definitely the... Uh, in the same information vacuum. But at the same time, many of them uh, have relatives or friends in Ukraine. So uh, uh, those who are more pro-Ukrainian, they are trying to, uh, um, to get this information from their relatives. We also established uh, for Crimean Tatars, because you need to remember that in Crimea, we have a very big um, part of the indigenous people, Crimean Tatars. The, uh, they didn't want to evacuate from Crimea because they've been already deported during the Second World War by Stalin. So now they said that they will fight and stay there for their land. And uh, the, these people speak Crimean Tatar language, and we have several resources purely for them. Plus, Turkey is assisting with the information for them. And these people probably have uh, the best um, information. Uh, still, Russians, especially those, you need to remember that almost one million Russians been moved uh, uh, for the last eight years uh, to Crimea. Uh, so th that is definitely not interconnection between Crimean Tatars and these Russian citizens that have been moved there to change the demography of the uh, Venezuela. It made me. Um, it made me curious. It, back in the Second World War, you heard an awful lot of um, tactical things used with even just giant speakers, even around Japan, right? These giant speakers that would broadcast audio across the ocean into these islands where 
Americans were and, and other countries were to just get the message across of uh, how much, you know, how dangerous they were and all that stuff. I was wondering if the opposite was very present there because it seems like it being so close but yet sort of so different and so far away that, that there would be something there. So thank you for providing that information. Um, uh, that's, that's quite amazing. Uh, Hannah Shalist is in, is in Odessa. It is on the Black Sea. It is in, um, the South. Uh, same that I sort of finish every conversation with, uh, Hannah. Um, you know, Canada's listening. What do we, what, what are we missing? What do we need to know? We know that there are talks going on close by. Um, you know, in and around uh, Belgium. Uh, I mean, our prime minister is over there. Uh, what, what do Canadians need to know uh, for, from you or, or from Ukraine? You know, as for, for now, there are more and more problems that started to uh, to appear. And we definitely need to speak that, okay, these one month Ukraine survived, but uh, um, one, two additional months, and we can have uh, both the food problems uh, and uh, we can have quite a significant consequences for the food security in the world, not only in Ukraine. But also, uh, we probably uh, understand that some of the military actions can be not so quickly finished, and Ukraine need additional support. As yesterday, um, the president spoke for NATO, even if each of the NATO member states would give us 1% of those equipment that they have, it will significantly help the Ukrainian armed forces. And that, that, that is a reality. Probably we also would like to hear a little bit louder voice of uh, Canada in terms of military and security issues. We heard this voice for the last eight years a lot in terms of training and support, and Canada was one of the leaders. But the last months, it seems to me that Canada became a little bit uh, soft-voiced um, comparing to other countries. And uh, as we're joking here, we would like our old Canada back. Oh, that's interesting. And you know, I really appreciate you saying that because I think that what that allows Canadians to, when we hear about the look from outside in to our countries, it, it really does take away our bias of what we go through every day and allows us that. So I'm glad you said that because that inspires Canadians to take the stand that they believe in, whether it's more or less, I hope it's more, um, but for them to believe in that stand because they're hearing from the voice directly inside uh, Ukraine uh, it's always great to speak to you, Hannah. I, I find your clarity amazing. Uh, I, your willingness to care for my health when you're going through this is also unbelievable. I'm going to try again on your on your on your your sort of cheers. Ready? You can laugh at me again. Thank you. We, we need uh, your voice to speak about Ukraine. <laughs> oh well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Here, here's my try on on saying this word properly. Uh, Budimo. How did I do? Always better. <laughs> a little bit better. All right, I'll take it. Uh, Hannah Shalis, PhD. She's with Ukrainian Prism, and um, uh, Hannah is Foreign Policy Counsel uh, for the for the program, and that's what the stand is: is clarity and information. Uh, Hannah, thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.
911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my god, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.